so last uh, in our last session, we saw how holiness and how you become holy has always been a big thing throughout church history. That tension of knowing that we're saved through the blood of Jesus, but at the same time being dissatisfied with how far short we fall of his perfection. And where we ended up in our last session, we had this new developed higher Christian life pattern holding sway in British evangelicalism, taught and brought to prominence mainly by the, uh, through the ministry of the Keswick Convention. But before we look on to uh, look into move it, uh, look, before we move on to looking objections and changes, it is worth just pausing and looking at a few other elements worth noting at this point. First of all, I don't think everyone who went to Keswick went just to get the holiness blessing. Because when you get hundreds, then thousands of Christians together in a lovely part of the country, it's a special time. It's a special time singing, praying, opening scripture together. So lots of people would simply go on Christian holiday there and enjoy a little foretaste of heaven. Second, don't presume that all the speakers all believed the same thing. As we'll see later, some came with a more theological background. Some were just very, very winsome speakers. Uh, Some of you know Rob Brewis. He's currently doing his PhD thesis on the theology of Bishop Handley Mole. And uh, I've been working with him on that. And uh, we've been talking. I think lots of us who are from a more reformed tradition would struggle to find any major stuff that we disagreed with in either Handley Mole's commentary on Romans or many of his 19th century Keswick sermons. Third, and this is really important, please don't overcredit the Keswick congregations with a big, clear theological awareness and understanding. People who went to Keswick came from all walks of life. They came from all kinds of educational backgrounds. And for many, they simply just enjoyed the whole Keswick experience. It is a bit like some of the churches that many of us pastor. There might be in our congregation some very, very clued up, theologically aware folk, but lots aren't. So don't presume that Keswick was sending back thousands of competent, theologically astute Christians back into their churches. Fourth, Keswick also became a product of the age it was founded. Victorian Romanticism was at its height in the mid-19th century. Obviously, Scripture was important in their understanding of how this holiness construct worked. But I think it would be fair to say that other things influenced this kind of crisis experiential theology. Now, there's been some really, really fascinating stuff written on this subject by uh, David Bevington from Stirling University. And uh, I think some of you may know Nick Tucker. Uh, he was his PhD supervisor uh, because I think uh, Nick has also done some work on 19th century uh, romanticism as well. Uh, but this is a really, really fascinating book. And it's um, what it is, it's a series of lectures on holiness in the 19th century and they've subsequently been published. And um, Bebbington takes one of his chapters to be romantic influences on the Keswick Convention. So really very, very, very interesting stuff. So Bevington suggests five influences of Victorian Romanticism that impacted the crisis 
and the heightened emotions, if you like, of the Keswick experience. In other words, how the words that were spoken and the experiences people had there in the tent affected their personal spiritual responses. And the first thing he says is there were poetic inclinations. So sometimes Coleridge and Wordsworth were quoted at length in the sermons at Keswick, as were characters such as Francis Ridley Havergal and Charles Fox. Fox was even affectionately known as the Keswick poet. He said the poetry of the spiritual was one of the most purifying and elevating forces God has given to lift us to himself and out of self. His most famous anthology is Lyrics from the Hills, poems about Lakeland Hills. And that leads us on to the second element, the Lake District setting itself. You see, the beauty and nature in the Keswick surroundings was itself seen as a sanctifying force, sort of in the lines, in line with the pantheism of early Wordsworth. The Baptist preacher F.B. Meyer, a very, very well-known Keswick speaker in the late 19th and early 20th century, became very, very emotional in some of his sermons. One night while he was preaching, uh, he talked about his experience after the previous night's meeting. Let me quote from the yearbook in 1920. He says this, I rushed out of the tent. It was late at night and the wind was driving the clouds across the lake past me. And now again, they dropped a few drops on my upturned face. Father, as I breathe in this breath of the evening air, so I breathe in thy gift of the Holy Spirit. Third, crisis moments. You see, dramatic moments were the stock in trade of the romantic literature. Pearsall Smith said at the Oxford Conference, it is to try and bring you to a crisis of faith that we have come together. Fourth, peace and relaxation, reflected in the romantic culture and sense of calm. Sort of early on at Keswick, music was said to be at times very soft and low at the convention, opposed to the exuberance of Methodism. Fifth, a premillennialist view. The saviour was going to return imminently to put wrongs, uh, put wrongs right, and that was a, rever- a, a, a view revived by uh, Edward Irving. That's a very, very quick 60-second digest of Bebbington's work on there, but you get the whole idea. Um, it's sort of dramatic romanticism, uh, sort of had a big influence on um, 19th and early 20th century uh, Keswick meetings. But there were other major influences in the whole experience of receiving this holiness. Uh, one of the things I was talking about somebody yesterday uh, was the, the music and the hymn singing. Uh, music was important earlier at Keswick. And some of the great hymns of the 19th and early 20th century were written for or at Keswick. Keswick had its own hymn book. This, I've got several copies because people, whenever they find them in second-hand bookshops, think, oh, Philip would like that. And so they buy me it. So I've got about seven copies of this, um, which I never turn it down, of course. Um, but this is a nice leather-bound back with quite an old one. It's fallen a bit, this look. But um, yeah, really, really interesting. Uh, do have a look. Remember the formula, the God-given sequence. Um, 
well, that's what follows the, the, the book, you know. Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night. So you, you can follow it through there. But you remember the formula of how you become holy. Surrender everything to God and he will honour your surrender and make you holy. What about this one? Written at the height of the American holiness of Phoebe Palmer in the holiness heartland of Michigan in America. The Wednesday night Keswick hymn book. Sung it pretty much every year they did. All to Jesus I surrender. All to thee I freely give. I will ever love and trust you. In your presence dearly live. I surrender all. I surrender all. All to thee my blessed saviour. I surrender all. All to Jesus I surrender. Lord I give myself to thee. Fill me with your love and power. Let your blessing fall on me. All to Jesus I surrender, now I feel the sacred flame. Oh, the joy of full salvation. Glory, glory to your name. Do have a look at it after if you want to. But it wasn't long before mini Keswick started springing up all over the UK. And they all followed the constructed pattern, the God-given sequence. And the Keswick speakers themselves were invited to lead these sort of mini Keswicks. And I've got to say, all this, along with the huge growing popularity of the convention, made Keswick Higher Life Holiness Teaching an unstoppable force. It literally steamrolled through evangelicalism. Today, of course, we might call it holiness theology, Keswick theology. But John Stott said to this to me in, in the interview that I had with him, it's probably true to say that it was mainstream evangelical theology for the first half of the 20th century. Alistair McGrath, in his biography of Jim Packer, he says this, British evangelicals had probably, without fully realising it, come to regard the Keswick teaching on sanctification as being not merely correct, but also of defining importance. But I just thought it might be worth driving down a little cul-de-sac for a second, because whenever I've spoken on this stuff before, I've often been asked the same question, and there's not a really good answer to it. And the question is this, was there any link between Keswick holiness meetings and, say, the great revivals in the USA and the UK? Because both very much had an emphasis on crisis and surrender. Both seem to have moved away from a sort of Puritan, Calvinistic understanding. Both were supposed to lead to a change of life and a change of lifestyle. Well, there were differences. The revival meetings were a lot more sort of spontaneous, maybe even a little disorganised. There was more emphasis on supernatural gifts, etc. But I have to say, not a great deal has been written or investigated on the subject. One article I read recently said that Evan Roberts of the 1904 Welsh revivals was influenced in his earlier life by holiness movements. But beyond that, it's difficult to draw the lines. It's easier to draw lines from the revivals to the later Pentecostalism, a lot of which also is based on experiential crisis. So I cannot talk definitively on that subject. If you want to do your PhD on that subject, I would love to read it, and I would happily put it in the Keswick Archive. 
Now let's put turn back out of our cul-de-sac and look at theological opposition, the pushback to Keswick holiness. Because not everyone agreed with me with it. An opposition began very, very early. Now come on, then you may answer what is probably J.C. Ryle's most famous book. Well done. Ten out of ten, go to the top of the class. Holiness. Not some time. There's always one, and it's usually him. Five English reform. All right, okay. Yes, moving on. The rest of us, it's holiness, isn't it? That's the one we've all heard of. Um, That's the most famous one. But I don't know whether you know this, but holiness was a very thinly veiled attack on Keswick theology. It was trying to re-establish a more reformed Puritan theology. Now, in the preface to the second edition, this is what Ryle writes. He never mentions Keswick by name, but this is what he writes in his preface to the second edition. It is easy to get crowds together for what are called higher life and consecration meetings. Anyone knows that who has watched human nature and read descriptions of American camp meetings and studied the curious phenomena of the religious affections. Sensational and exciting addresses by strange preachers or women. <laughs> Loud singing, hot rooms, crowded tents. The constant sight of strong semi-religious feeling in the faces all around you for several days. But is the good real, deeply rooted, solid and lasting? Question mark. So he then asks seven questions of higher life teaching and he answered them. And the seven questions are this. Is the personal holiness of the individual restricted to an act of faith? Or is, is any personal effort involved? Second, shouldn't teaching concerning holiness be based on the words of Jesus and Paul? Because there's no scriptural warrant to suggest personal holiness is simply concerned with believing, feelings and emotions. Third, is it wise in some vague manner to suggest that a kind of perfection is attainable before heaven? Fourth, is the interpretation of Romans 7 referring to a weak Christian as opposed to the advanced believer of chapter 8 a fair reading of the passage? Five, is their doctrine of the Trinity the same as that of the Bible? Six, is it scripturally accurate to set such a wide distinction between the conversion and consecration of the believer? Seven, is the call to a passive yielding to God in order to be made holy wise? Encouraging believers not to fight against the sin in their own lives, that is most unhelpful. In other words, let go and let God is wrong. Now, he unpacks all those sorts of things. I ain't got time to unpack everything that he says, but there he, he unpacks those things. Now, you can see how it is very very thinly veiled. But a couple of things to say about Ryle and his response. Firstly, holiness is not 
an easy, lightweight read. So not many people in the pew would have read it at all, understood it, and changed their mind about holiness. So we have to ask, how effective was it at opposing the experience of higher life theology? History shows not very effective at all. In fact, holiness became more popular in the 20th century. We'll come back to that in a moment. Keswick Speakers, on the other hand, wrote short, readable books, sometimes just pamphlets. We have those little books and we have those pamphlets in the Keswick archive, falling to bits. Some of the Keswick speakers did try to take on Ryle uh, theologically. Evan Hopkins, you might remember him from yesterday, wrote a book, The Law of Liberty in the Spiritual Life. And lots saw that as an attempted answer to Ryle's holiness. But second, sometimes Ryle is accused of being a little harsh, a little puritanical, um, an evangelical who not to mess with. But you know, as far as Keswick was concerned, he was very anti-Keswick holiness teaching, but he always, always tried to be gracious. In fact, this may surprise you. Ryle was a very, very good friend of Harford Battersby. There's actually an error in the Keswick history. Um, There is an error, I know. Because it says, um, Charles Price, who wrote uh, that chapter in, in this book, it says that Ryle even sat on the Keswick platform. That's not strictly true. Uh, Ryle was that. What actually happened was Ryle was organising a big missionary conference, and he asked his very good friend Harford Battersby if he could borrow his big tent <laughs> and hold it in Keswick while the tent was up, just before the Keswick Convention started. That's when he physically sat on the Keswick platform, <laughs> not at the Keswick Convention. But you know, as an act of unity, one year, Ryle did preach at St John's Keswick for Harford Battersby the week before the convention started. So that's Ryle's opposition. Maybe go and reread it in the light of Keswick holiness. But the other big theological pushback was by American Calvinist theologian B.B. Warfield. B.B. Uh, Warfield wrote a massive two-volume work, Perfectionism, just after World War I. It was a good time to write it, because the mood was very much focused on the evil of mankind. And it was a full-scale theological attack on all holiness movements, both sides of the Atlantic. There was Keswick, but there were similar conventions and movements in Germany, and Warfield attacked them too. But it's fair to say it had very little effect in the pew of the local church or on Keswick. Now, I had to read long sections of Warfield for my dissertation, and I've got to say it was like wading through treacle. It's tiny print, it's densely two-column typed, and if you dropped either volume on your foot, you'd have to go to A&E. So then again, how many regular Christians would get even close to reading Warfield? And if they did, 
would they understand it? Both volumes of Perfectionism are in the Oak Hill Library. If you want to have a go at it, be warned. They're both on the bottom shelf. Don't put your back out lifting them. But not only that, people loved and trusted Keswick. The Academia of Warfield was just men in ivory towers, a long way removed from my daily walk with God. Again, we need to remind ourselves that Keswick wasn't monochrome holiness teaching all the time. There were some preachers who occasionally seemed to take a more reformed line at Keswick. That happened mainly just pre-war in the 1930s and the early 50s with preachers like Ernest Kevin. But there were not watershed moments like we're going to talk about tomorrow. So moving on in time, Martin Lloyd-Jones. Some of you will have heard of him. Martin Lloyd-Jones took a very, very big risk. Because remember, the InterVarsity Fellowship had its roots in Keswick. UCCF has still got a big presence there with their campsite. Well, in 1951, Lloyd-Jones was asked to speak at the third Welsh InterVarsity Fellowship. And he took the sovereignty of God as his theme. And in his talks, he vigorously, vigorously attacked traditional Keswick holiness teaching. And it was actually those very talks that caused Ryle's holiness to be reprinted with a new foreword written by Lloyd-Jones himself. But if we're being honest, it was really difficult to attack Keswick holiness theology because every time someone said Keswick theology... Like I said yesterday, the response was, there is no Keswick theology. Keswick is a Bible convention. They said, you can't pin Keswick down and say, Keswick says this. How can a Bible convention have a doctrine of its own? It's not an organisation as such with a constitution. And that was the standard answer that Keswick would always use until. And this is a big until. Stephen Barabbas of Wheaton College in the USA did his doctoral thesis on the Keswick God-given secrets. Barabbas actually never himself attended Keswick, surprisingly, but he did his doctoral thesis on the God-given sequence. And his thesis was then published as a book, it's still available, And uh, Stephen Barabbas thought it would be a lovely touch to invite the Keswick Convention Council, the chair of the Keswick Convention Council, to write the foreword to his book. The chairman at that time was Fred Mitchell, who's in your um, yearbooks that you've got there. Now, Fred Mitchell was coming to the end of his term as chairman. He was retiring, but before he did he agreed to write the foreword to Barabbas's book. Let me quote to you what he wrote in his foreword and see if you can spot what we might call the big mistake. This is what he wrote. It is a book which is faithful and accurate. It is well annotated with sources of his information. It is saturated with an appreciative spirit, for he himself has been so much helped by Keswick. The book will form a textbook and a reference book on this unique 
movement. Now, did you spot it? Those last words were probably not theologically or practically the best move a chairman of Keswick has ever made. Why? Because now it was impossible to say Keswick doesn't have a theology. It is a Bible teaching convention. We have a textbook and a reference book for its theology. The big boss says so. Well, that meant for those who disagreed with Keswick Higher Life Holiness teaching, it was now theological open season on Keswick. And who put their theological combat gear on first? You might have heard of the guy called Jim Packer. Packer wrote a review of Barabbas's book for the theological journal Evangelicals Quarterly. And boy, oh boy, it's what amounts to an extended and vitriolic theological attack on Keswick holiness teaching done with very little grace and compassion. The article even makes it onto Packer's Wikipedia page. After taking about the theology of the God-given sequence, Packer takes the obvious systematic step. This is what he says. If you need to do X, Y, and Z to become holy, then you are contributing to your own salvation. And so he accuses Keswick of the heresy of Pelagianism, contributing to your own salvation. So he ends his article by writing this. Pelagianism is the natural heresy of zealous Christians who are not interested in theology. Ouch. Well, there was a backlash against Packer for daring to besmirch the good name of Keswick. The 20th century uh, theologian F.F. Bruce, uh, who we heard from uh, Mark about yesterday, um, this is his memoirs. This is his memoirs, forward by Jim Packer. Um, just so happened that F.F. Bruce was the editor of Evangelicals Quarterly when he wrote his article. And so he mentions Packer's, even in his memoirs, he mentions it. And he wrote this in his memoirs. Whether Dr. Packer's treatment was well-founded or not, it evoked some very unsanctified reactions from those who disagreed with it. <laughs> Interesting, when Packer corresponded with me, uh, he was a little older and maybe a wiser, and his very, very last sentence that he wrote to me was this. He said, um, I, I accept that my article was unduly shrill and harsh. <laughs> but there was another big problem, because at the time Packer wrote his review about Keswick and Barabbas's uh, thesis, uh, he'd just begun lecturing at Tyndale Hall in Bristol. Who was the principal of Tyndale Hall when he wrote his article, the new chairman of Keswick, A.T. Halton? Oops. Now, apparently, Halton had letters as principal urging him to sack Packer the heretic. But he didn't. And Packer told me that his boss, A.T. Halton, wrote him a letter 
not to tear a strip off him, because it says in some of the things, oh, and A.T. Horton wrote and responded. Packer said, no, he didn't. He really didn't. He didn't write to tear a strip off me. He said, he said that it was a pastoral letter with great sadness at the tone and scale of the attack. But again, remember, Evangelicals Quarterly was a pretty heavyweight theological journal. How many people read it in the pew? Actually attended Keswick and would read it? Well, not many. Now, over the years, Packer's attacks have famously continued. Um, I'm sure many of you have read uh, Keeping Step with the Spirit, Jim Packer's uh, book. Uh, There's a section there where he really does carry on his vicious attack of Keswick. And uh, if you read it, he, he calls Keswick holiness pietistic goofiness. Pietistic goofiness. But it's fair to say Keswick remained remained theologically unchanged until the 1960s. At the beginning of the 1960s, there was a bit of a revolution in evangelical circles because suddenly you had some very good and very capable young preachers emerging. Their names, well, you might have heard of some of them. Philip Hacking, Ken Pryor, Dick Lucas... Alec Mateer, John Stott, Eric Alexander. And being good, capable preachers, A.T. Horton began to invite, to invite them to come and preach at Keswick. Problem was, they didn't agree with Keswick holiness theology. They were more steeped in Reformed theology based on the Puritans. So those were the guys who theologically didn't really hold with this crisis sanctification. So what would happen when you had two fundamentally different positions being held by different Bible teachers at the same convention? For that exciting instalment, you are going to need to tune into the next session because that's when we're going to deal with what happened in the 1960s, the battle for the heart of Keswick holiness. Well, like yesterday, I think it is worth just pausing for a second to reflect. I wonder how important practical Christian holiness is not only in our own lives, but to those who we serve as pastor teachers. Is it something that we worry about teaching in case we sort of slip into moralistic, pull your socks up kind of theology? Or are we clear about the importance of our sanctification in the way that we live our lives. I was chatting to uh, my boss at Keswick, James Robson, about this, and I was leading a session for the Keswick staff team uh, earlier this year. And whilst he agreed that the past emphasis was no longer there, he was absolutely clear that Keswick still preached for a change in the life of the believer, effected by God's Holy Spirit, ongoing work, in that life, and that change should be to make us more holy, more godly, and more like Jesus. And so if there are areas of our lives that are entrenched in sin, maybe we do need occasional crisis moments where God lays on our hearts things that need to change, where we look to the Lord Jesus and see his holiness and ask God by his Spirit not only to forgive but to transform our lives so that they glorify him. But I've got to be careful because I realise who's in my 
audience today, I think there is also a call to make sure that our teaching is understandable. In our preaching, in our teaching, our Bible studies, and in our writing. Not to dumb it down, but to make sure it's not out of reach by those who we pastor, who we are trying to who are trying to live for Jesus day by day. Last uh, Saturday, um, my curate uh, Ian uh, graduated uh, from Oak Hill, and we were very, very, very proud of him. And uh, there's a lovely little video on on Facebook of him getting his uh, degree. And um, yeah, it's, it's a lovely. His, his wife took the video on her on her phone, and she was whooping, woo, 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 woo. Was just lovely. But you know, it, it announced what he'd got as an academic um, award. And he got MA with honours, with distinction. He's a clever, clever boy. And we were celebrating that together as a church family on on Sunday. But I said to my church family, I said, it is all very well, and we're very, very proud of him, that we've got this very, very clever boy in in our congregation. And he is a clever, clever boy. But what we need to pray is that all that really hugely important work that he's done in getting that award, somehow does filter down and is a blessing to the church and ultimately transforms us all. Because if it's just a paper that gets stuck in a library somewhere where people in the pew never benefit from it, then we need to think again about why we are doing academics because we want to make sure that not only the understanding of these deep academic theological things goes forward, because we do, but actually affects the church of God. And so I would pray that that happens. So yes, by all means, buy all these books, but make sure it has a ripple-down effect in your ministry and in the people who you serve. Let's pray. Lord, once again, we do thank you for these godly people um, who taught at Keswick and wanted to make a difference in people's lives. And we do thank you for the likes of Packer, for his immense theological awareness, and our ancestors like Ryle and Warfield. We thank you for the legacy that they have left us. But Lord God, we do pray that all academic work would be used to transform your church to help us all grow to be more like Jesus. And we ask these things in his precious name. Amen.